Amen, amen. How we doing? We doing good? Are we doing good this morning? Are we awake? Okay, I just want to know I'm talking to an alive group of people in front of me. I'm really glad you're alive this morning. Double duty today. I'm doing double duty today. So here's the deal. If you're, I know we have some angelic voices in our community in front of us. So you got the harmonies going. I can hear you out there. Kim, I, can, I know she's doing it. You guys have all heard it. Ah, angelic voices. If you're a, a gifted artist or worshiper, come talk to me afterwards. And you're like, and I mean like, you know it. Like, not like, oh, I sang once. If you're like, yeah, I can do this. I want to do it. I, I feel called to this. Come talk to me afterwards so that next time this happens, I'm just like focused here. I'm so nervous. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Holy Spirit, come. <laughs> Speak to your community. Speak to your people. Lord. From the time I was um, just about five to ten years old, I was extremely afraid of the dark. My parents will tell you, I would like go over to the room in the middle of the night, and that was even scary, going through the hallway to their door and knock on the door, Mom, Dad, I'm scared. And then they'd come out and they'd be like, go back to bed. Um, no, they, would, they were very kind and they loved me. They drew me in. I had a really overactive imagination, which served me well when I was bouncing off the walls, pretending to be a Jedi, and like driving my parents insane. It was awesome. But when you're a child, um, this active imagination can just be a canvas to paint your fears into reality. Like all the things you're afraid of come to life. It didn't help that I grew up in an extra spiritual household either, where my parents and pastors were like, hey, you're not allowed to watch Harry Potter or Pokemon or any of that magical stuff because it's all real and it's coming to get you, kid. Like, not helpful when you just learn to like wipe your butt. So... I was, like, really not excited about that. It wasn't exactly true, but, you know, it wasn't very reassuring. One evening, I finally decided I'd had enough. I was like, I'm done being afraid of the dark. So I walk out through the hallway into the dark cave of the living room. AKA, yeah, it was just, it was a living room. And, and, and I stood there. And I stood there for about 10, 10 minutes or so. And... I didn't really go out there to disprove that there were monsters out there. I didn't go out there to disprove the existence of monsters. I wanted to show them that I wasn't scared. I wanted to show them that I was brave. I was a super dramatic kid. I was like, listen, guys, I'm not afraid of you anymore. I'm not scared. Jesus is with me. My parents told me. So me standing in the dark, when I finally like, heard a noise behind me, I, it scared the, I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to die. This is it. And it was just like my dad who always woke up at three o'clock in the morning to go to work in a karate pose ready to like destroy me because he probably thought I was an intruder in full karate mode. And he's like, boy, get, get, go back to bed. And yeah, that was his creeper son standing in the dark, talking to the dark. 15 years later, here, I find myself, if you're doing the math, I'm 20 years old. I'm just kidding. I'm not. Uh, 15 years later from being 10, which I'm, I'm 26, 15 years later, I find myself regularly sitting alone in the dark, in the silence, in attempt to practice the way of Jesus. At face value, you'd come to expect that this would be one of the easier practices, right? Do nothing. Just, just try and do nothing for five minutes. But much like I expected when I was younger, there in the dark and in the silence and in the waiting, there are, in fact, monsters. All of my insecurities, temptations, anxieties, 
distractions, past failures, unmet expectations, depressions, fantasies, and fears, they roar at me from the darkness. And it's very difficult to find Jesus through all of that noise. Right now we're in the middle of our series, uh, The Art of Abiding. For five weeks we're asking the question from John 15, how do we remain or abide in God's love? How do the practices this week of solitude and silence keep us centered and abiding in the Father's love? This morning we'll weave our way through this question in three fundamental parts. These are kind of like the makeup of our community and a handful of other communities throughout the U.S., up and down the West Coast. We're going to, in these three parts, doing what Jesus did, becoming like Jesus, and being with Jesus. If you didn't hear it because of the car horn. <laughs> doing what Jesus did, becoming like Jesus, and being with Jesus. Now, what I just described, the monsters, the anxieties, all those things that meet you in the dark, might not sound as beautiful and as welcoming as abide in me. Right, abide in me. Look to your neighbor right now. Say, abide. Yeah, you try just like a little whisper. Abide. But solitude and silence does have many faces. First, we will unpack the beauty of abide. And as we move forward, we'll address those shadowy faces. From the text this morning that um, my lovely wife, she's super pregnant right now. It's awesome. We're going to have our first little boy. I'm so excited. Woo! I was, I was doing it for you guys. Woo! That's what you're supposed to do when I say something like that. Yeah, there you go. Okay, a little bit better. <laughs> and from Dan's teaching a couple of weeks back, to abide. To abide means to make a home in, a dwelling place in, a place within. And this imagery is not one-sided either. God isn't just asking us to make a home in him. He's also, his desire is to make a home in you to make a dwelling place in you. Dan says like little food trucks of his presence, going from place to place, carrying his presence. God wants to make a temple in you. When we look at the life and the patterns of Jesus, which we'll dive into in a bit, we see that a primary entry point into that dwelling place was silence and solitude. There's a bit of this in the air, in the moment, right? You rarely see an Instagram post about self-care. Self-care. That's how I say it. When I read those, that's how I read it. That's how it sounds. Without some mention or meditation of mindfulness or meditation of like sitting down for a second and just thinking like, I'm beautiful, I'm lovely. Like it's, that's what mindfulness is. That's what meditation is. Both, these can be extremely helpful things. Mindfulness, meditation. But there is a key difference between the practices of the world and the practice of silence and solitude for the follower of Jesus. You guys are all about to get an A plus because what do you think might be the difference? The answer to this question, the difference between the world and the follower of Jesus would probably be Jesus is always the answer. You all get an A plus. The goal of solitude and silence isn't to empty your mind or to reach a state of nirvana. It's instead to be hollowed out of our flesh and filled up with the presence of God. And even more than that, and here's what I really think the Spirit's trying to speak to our community today. The practice of abiding is actually about God's desire to be with you. It's not about how I feel about uh, entering into the presence of God. If I'm really stoked on it or I'm, if I'm feeling bad about it or if I'm feeling like I can't really do it today. It's about God's desire to be with you today and every day. To live in and through his people. 
No doubt about it, this practice will serve your well-being, your mental, spiritual health in time, but the temptation is to make it solely about your well-being, just about you. For your, our introverts, how many of you guys introverts? See, you're not going to raise your hand. Introverts raised their hands just now out there in the back. That's good. This can become a spiritual justification for narcissism rather than a discipline to become a person of love defined by God. Like, I'm just going to get alone by myself and read books and just, like, feed myself and just be, be me. I just need some time to be me. I'm an introvert. That's me. That's how I get alone. And our extroverts, where are extroverts at? That's just, yeah, see, exactly. A completely different thing happened here. You guys, <laughs> you people, can place it in your back pocket as an optional extra based on felt need, which rarely, if ever, comes to the surface. You're like, I just need people. I just want to hang out. I just want to hang out. I want to hang out. And then God's like, hey, what about me? Just like sitting alone. You're like, uh, yeah, well, I'll do that later. But like, I'm going to go to in and out with some buddies. This, sim- this simply isn't true or healthy on either accounts. We're not supposed to make it about ourselves, and we can't place it in our back pocket as an option. Solitude for the person without community is a dangerous venture into isolation. You become an echo chamber of your own will, your own way, unchecked by a loving community like Neighbors Church here. And for the person who thinks of solitude as an optional thing, Henry Nouwen says this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we don't set aside time to be with God and listen. I agree. Neglecting intentional time in the presence of God outside of this gathering time right here, like if it's only Sunday for you, it makes it nearly impossible to have a relationship with God. It really does. This is true of any other relationship in your life. If there's neglect, it's probably not thriving. It's probably not going well. And when it comes to your time with God, it can be the difference between life and a kind of spiritual death. So let's define the practice for our community. Get your, get your phones ready. Get your pens ready. If you have something to take notes with, we're going to define silence and solitude. Very simply, silence and solitude is intentional time alone in the quiet to be with ourselves and with God. One more time. Silence and solitude is intentional time Alone in quiet to be with ourselves and with God. Ruth Haley Barton, who was super helpful in all my research, described a part of the experience this way. In this silence, there's potential for you to be still and know that I am God. There's potential for you to actually sit still and acknowledge the presence of God with such certainty that the competing powers of evil and sin and the ego self can no longer hold us in their grip. All the forces of evil, all the forces of evil band together to prevent you from knowing God because it brings an end to the dominion of those powers in our lives when we sit in silence. That's the power in this practice of intentionally being alone with God. God wants to put an end to the fear that grips us and holds us. He desires to be with you in a space where you're unhindered in your time alone with him. Alone, like, right, it might be a trigger word for some of us. Like, we just went through a global pandemic. This is the first time some of you guys, I've seen... 
This is the first time I've seen some of your faces, actually. <laughs> this is great. Like, I've only seen, like, your eyes, and you guys, are, you guys are cute. You guys are handsome people. This is awesome. But be reassured. There is a world of difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they're worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. And isolation is what happens when you neglect solitude, when you don't do it. Maybe you feel a tinge of fear or like it's too big for you when you're being presented with these practices. And that's understandable. I, I get it. We don't live in a world that values silence or being alone. I can, imagine, I can imagine the panic setting in. Like, if I'm, if I'm silent, if I, don't, if I don't cry out, like I'm supposed to cry out, right? If I don't like lift my voice, then who's going to hear me? Which is, truthfully, another way of saying, if, if I'm quiet, then how am I going to control God? If, 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 I'm, if I'm quiet, how am I going to manipulate God and other people into doing what I, what I want them to do and what I want to see in this world? What happens then? And the truth is, in the quiet, in the stillness, there's fully an opportunity for God to take control. We fall into the habit of using our words to control the world around us. And when we stop, when we stop and we just quiet for a moment, God takes control. Turn to your neighbor, turn to your neighbor and go, shh. Yeah, just look at your, yeah, shh. This is really ironic that I'm teaching silence and solitude because, like, my wife and everyone that knows me know that I'm not a very quiet person. Like, I'm just like, ah! Like, I, don't, I, I wouldn't get it. I'm an introvert. I'm a loud introvert. If that makes sense, like I'm an artist person, I always want to be talking. And so it just contradicts everything in me. But the fact is, this is what Jesus did. And I like to think that Jesus was kind of like me, <laughs> right? Like, like he, was, he, was, he was maybe an introvert. He always went alone. And then also he was, like, talking to crowds of people and, like, uh -huh, and everybody loved him. I just want everyone to like me. <clears throat> Jesus shows us how to live this out throughout all of the Gospels. He shows us that solitude and silence are both intimately woven into a trusting relationship with the Father. You'll often find the acts of Jesus bookended by times of solitude and silence. And get ready, because we're going to just do a little like overview of the way Jesus engages in silence and solitude. He kicks off his ministry by spending 40 days alone in the desert. Before he chose the 12, he went to be alone in the hills. After his cousin John was killed... He withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. After he fed 5,000, Jesus went up into the hills by himself. After a long night of work in the morning, while the sun had not yet risen, he rose and went to a lonely place. When the 12 returned from a teaching and healing mission, Jesus instructed them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place. After he healed the leper, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. With three disciples, he chose a lonely mountain as the place setting for his transfiguration, meeting with Elisha and Moses. And finally, before he gave himself over to be killed for our salvation, before the work of the cross, he found solitude in the Garden of Gethsemane. When you build this rhythm into your life of solitude and silence, you're doing 
what Jesus did. And this is the makeup of our community. This is one of the things you're here to do. This is one of the centerpieces of our community here at Neighbors. If you're new to this space and you're wondering, like, what are these people all about? It's, it's this. We actually want to do the things that Jesus did. We're not here to contemplate only the ideas that Jesus laid out and like wax philosophical. We're here to observe his life with eyes wide open and then attempt by way of and filling of his spirit to live the way that Jesus lived. We don't want just a set of ideologies or ideas filling our minds so that we can like have a moral high ground. We're losing that moral high ground anyways. It, it, it's it's going to become void. We actually have to live it out. We want to be a part of what he's doing even now in the world. Silence and solitude is absolutely, it is not an inactive practice. It is action. Dallas Willard says this, silence is not a decision to not act at all. Although in some situations it may lead to like, be like, don't say anything, don't act. But it's actually a decision concerning how you will act in dependence on God. How am I going to act out my dependence on God? How do I actually trust God today? The first step, I think, is to go to a quiet and lonely place like Jesus did. And here, to know what it's like to hear from God, you must actually take time to listen. You have to go to the lonely place. Lonely place in Greek is like, I really like this word, so I'm going to, you guys don't need to know Greek, but I'm going to say it because it sounds cool. I'm not smart at all. I just Googled this. Lonely place in Greek is Aremos. Can you look to your neighbor and say, Aremos. I got to go to the Aremos. Jesus is constantly going to the Aremos to meet with God and be with himself. Two things. Two things about doing what Jesus did, and then we'll move on to the next part, and that's going to be kind of the chunk that fills this middle section of this teaching. It'll be most of you guys are going to have to buckle up and, like, really lock in with me there. But one, first thing, first thing if you're writing down notes, Jesus goes to the Eremos in part because it informs the way he interacts with the world. Here it is. In time alone with the Father, he discovers the way he's meant to engage with the world. He gets alone so that he can learn how to be with people. He goes and engages with the Father and with himself so that he can know how to get with other people. And number two, we do this because of Jesus' example because it leads us into a place where we're human. Like, we don't get to say anything. We don't get to, like pretend to be God. We don't get to go out, thus saith me. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. We don't get to necessarily in that space name it and claim it. We're sitting in silence. We're waiting and we're like, God, I'm, just, I'm human and you are God. In the quiet, we can no longer define or control our humanity with our own words. God takes the wheel. We become in that moment truly human and by that, we become more like Jesus. And becoming like Jesus. Here we are. It's part two. Buckle up. Get your seatbelts ready. This is the hard part of silence and solitude. <laughs> like, it's not always fun. It's not always warm and fuzzy. There's a warm and fuzzy tone that comes with abide. Look to your neighbor again. Abide. You guys are so quiet when you do it. Like, do it with a little bit of oomph. Abide. Don't breathe in each other's faces, though. That's kind of. Put your mask back on. Just kidding. Strangely enough, this, this word abide wasn't 
it wasn't the focus of silence and solitude for early Christians. The go-to verse in reference to the practice of solitude and silence was not the warm invitation of John 15, remain in me and I'll remain in you. It was actually Luke chapter 4. For, for the desert fathers and mothers, if you don't know who are, those people are, just like go up to Dan and say like desert, and he'll just start talking about the desert fathers and mothers. He's like, hey Dan, desert? And he'll be like, well, uh, let me tell you about early Christianity. And he'll just like, he's just like this fountainhead of knowledge. But for, for, for the early Christians, it was Luke chapter 4. And this is what it says. You can go there. Actually, if you have a Bible, open up. Luke chapter 4. I think it's going to be. I don't have the verse, so you're just going to have to look. I don't have it written down here. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus led out into the wilderness. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where 40 days he was tempted by the devil. <laughs> that, what? what? What do you mean? Wait, he, he was led out by the Spirit into the wilderness and then there he, the devil was there? I don't get it. Yeah, Jesus is led into the Spirit, into the desert by the Spirit. And the primary thing we know about that time, when he went out to the desert, this is like where you go to meet with God, right? When you, I'm going to go on a silent retreat. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to get all the feels. God's going to be there. Oh, my goodness, abide. And then Satan's out there. And then it's like, boom, Satan. That's hard to wrap your head around. So I won't get into all the implications. There's, there's, there's so much there that we would have to mine and, like, do a bunch of theological work and, I'm not a theologian, I'm like a singer or whatever. And so instead, let's try this. Let's take a deep breath into your belly. One more time, deep into the belly. And exhale. And we're just gonna acknowledge the truth of this. When we take time to slow down and get into lonely places, it is true that we often find the darkness there, and we do not find God. In the quiet, in the dark, I'm, I'm almost like a kid again. Like, I'm, I'm afraid of the dark again. All of my usual patterns claw at me from the dark like, like monsters. It's so frustrating. It's so difficult. I go out to the Aramos to meet with God, and instead I find, I find, I find Satan. Sometimes there aren't any warm fuzzies in abide. I learned this the hard way with little to no guidance. I've been a worship leader for a, the, and an artist for the better part of about 10 years. And in all sorts of different environments, like really big, like lights, camera, action, fireworks sort of environments. Little like sort of Pentecostal, like and I had to learn to play the keys and all these interesting chords. And people were shouting and screaming. Um, all sorts of different environments. But when I first encountered uh, what I thought was the whole experience of God. I was like, this is it. I was in the back row of one of those sort of like more Holy Spirit services. It was shouting. It was screaming. It was clapping. It was crying. It was jumping, singing, dancing. It was a Holy Ghost Pentecostal. It was that sort of a, it was that sort of a thing. Youth camp night. That's what it was. And I thought to myself, this is it. This is the whole thing. This is, this is God. Yeah, jumping and singing and dancing. This is dope. God's dope. I like him. For a good stretch of time there, every worship song, every scripture, every church gathering left me with every single warm fuzzy, all the tinglings, all the goosies. Holy Spirit goosebumps all day to the point where people, even like my parents sometimes would be like, like shut off that worship music. And I'd be like, you guys don't love Jesus enough. That was my whole thing. I was like, I was so in love with God and no one was as love, 
as in love with God as me. I used to have this gathering of peers in my house where we'd worship and pray and I'd give like an awful message. It was awesome. At one point, I had about 30 to 40 of my peers, teenagers, in my living room wanting to know what the heck this Jesus guy was all about. Because I was like, you guys need to really learn the real Jesus. Youth group is dumb. You guys come to my house and learn like what it really means. I was like Billy Graham in my mind. I was like young black Billy Graham in my head. I was like, there are 30 people here. I'm Billy Graham. <laughs> it wasn't true. I wasn't. And then one day, I, I was so full of zeal. I was so full of passion. I was going to change the world. And then, and then one day, it, it just went away. I was getting ready and... My friends and my peers and other people that I didn't know were coming to my house to hear about Jesus. And I was, I was just like, I actually just want to kind of go play Halo 2. I don't, <laughs> maybe cry later tonight. I don't want to, I don't want to tell people about Jesus. It, it's not, it doesn't feel good anymore. Worship music was like lame to me. I was like, this, how did this, how did all the Hillsong songs get lame all of a sudden? Preachers were all lame unless they were like, you're the worst. And then I would be like, yeah, I am. <laughs> God felt God felt incredibly distant. For a time, I actually scrambled and tried to conjure up some sense of God. I just thought if I fought hard enough with the demonic, what I thought was the demonic, that if I just sang a little louder, that, it would, that the spirit would come back. I had no one to tell me, look me in the eyes and say, actually, kid, this emptying of feelings that you have, this lack of desire that you have to go into the presence of God could very well be the actual presence of God. It very well could be God leading you by the Spirit into the wilderness. A journey into silence and solitude could very well be your willing participation in God stripping you of your definition of the presence of God. You think it's supposed to look one way, and then you read scriptures like, like, who am I that you are mindful of me? Or like, you, you, your ways are not my ways, but like, really, we're like, your ways are my ways. <laughs> like, what, what, what you want is what I want, God. The way that your presence is going to fall is a way that I want your presence to fall. We look at God, and he speaks to us from the silence. He says, I'm God. And we look back and go, what do you mean by that? You mean that I'm God? Which, which is not true. That's not it. This is a willing release of the need to try and control others and God with your words. Richard Foster puts it this way. When solitude is seriously pursued, there's usually like a flush of initial success. Like, oh, I'm doing this. Like, I, I did two minutes of silence. I'm the most spiritual person ever. And then the inevitable letdown. And with it, a desire to abandon it. Just, just leave it altogether. Feelings leave and there is not a sense. There's, there's a sense that we are not getting to, through to God. This happens in the whole of our Christian lives, but I think we face it most clearly in solitude and silence. It's exciting at first. You feel super deep and spiritual, like maybe I'm one of the great Christians of history and no one knows it yet. I'm in the silence. I'm listening to God. Whoa, this is awesome. Then God goes silent and the feelings, they go away. But take heart. If you're in that space right now, if you're like, this sucks. I don't know what to do with this emotion. I'm not talking about like if you... 
I'm, I'm not talking about if you like face sin in your life and then you were like, oh man, this feels really bad because I sinned and I feel guilty for it. Like God's doing a work there too and he's restoring and moving you back into a space where you can like feel and know him again. I'm talking about like you people that are like, I've never sinned a day in my life and the feeling is gone. That's what I felt like when I was 15 years old. I was like, God, I'm super devoted to you. Like I don't even like talk to girls. It's, it was because I was a nerd and I was awkward, not because <laughs> I was deciding to do that, but I don't even talk to girls, God. And and, and, and the feeling left. I was like, why is this happening to me? That thing that's happening is the anesthetic before the surgery. God cracks us open and he sees us in the lonely place. He sees us met by Satan, met by all of our doubts and fears, and he is not afraid. He doesn't turn away in disgust just because you don't feel like going into the presence of God. Remember this, remember this. Your desire to be with God did not start with you. It began with him. He found you. He chased you down. He spoke to someone to go and talk to you about Jesus. He put you in a space where you're surrounded by Christians. He talked to you and spoke to you in a dream, and you, you decided to read the Bible one day. Like, whatever way you think you found God, this is what the language we use, I found God. You did not find God. He found you. God is lovingly pulling you away from distraction of this self so that you can see him clearly again. This is grace. You might feel complete desperation. Stay with those feelings. Let God do his good work in you. Don't fight this. Henry Nouwen's exposition on solitude sums up this process almost perfectly. We're still, we're still going. We're almost towards the end of this middle big chunk here. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It isn't like... Like, just like to go and like talk through things with God. Rather, it's actually the place of conversion. Like, you, you think the, our, our typical understanding of this in, in our like American Western ways, we go out <laughs> to a church and then somebody gives a fiery message and then we walk up to the front and we're like, yes, Jesus, this is it. My whole life has changed. And for some of you, that might very well be the case. You might have been like doing drugs and then you walked up to the front, gave your life to Jesus, it was done. You're like, I, I'm dropping all of that. You might have been like looking at porn and then you walked up to the front and you're like, boom, that's dropped in my life. You might have been just living for yourself, a selfish life. You walked up to the front and for whatever reason, boom, like you were changed, you were converted. You're like, I'm, I'm a Jesus person now. But it's not like that for everyone. More likely than not, you find yourself in this elongated journey. And this is the place of conversion. In the silence and the solitude where the old self dies and the new self is born. The place where the emergence of the new man or the new woman occurs. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. With solitude, without solitude, we become victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self. Solitude is the place in the great, of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who actually offers himself as the substance of our new self. It's not just like us. It's him living in us. And back to Jesus. Jesus finds himself in this place, Luke chapter 4 or Matthew 4. He's in the desert, led by the Spirit, and finds the devil. His identity is, is tested by temptation. It's not a glaring temptation. Satan isn't like, worship me forever, the end. Satan isn't going out there and just giving this glare, like, if you bow down to me, 
then you'll be bowing down to me. He isn't just telling God, Jesus, like, change teams. He's actually tempting Jesus to take control of his own destiny. He's saying, Jesus, why don't you take control of your own destiny? Like, it seems like it's within Jesus' right to do. He's so tricky. Creator of all things, if that's really you, that's how I think he sounds. He sounds kind of like this. Why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and turn that stone into bread? Oh, he's Voldemort. I just got that right now. Creator of all things, if that's really you, turn this stone into bread. Aren't you hungry, Harry Potter? I don't That's not in my notes. I'm so sorry, everyone. He tests Jesus' identity. Oh, man. Okay. He tests Jesus' identity. He tempts him to, he attempts G, to force Jesus into defining for himself what it means to be Jesus. And the father is saying, let, let, you're coming out here so I can tell you, my son. By means of divine action. He's like, why don't you just use your spirit powers to like take control of your own destiny? But Jesus, he resists. He's fully engaging with humanity. He's saying, no, I'm actually, I've come here to be human so that I can empathize with the people I'm coming to save. He allows the Father to define him instead, replying, I don't live by bread alone. I'm here in the desert to commune with the true source of life, true bread that you don't know about, Satan. He's trusting the Father to fortify him, to feed him in the lonely place, and the Father does. Jesus leaves the desert full of the Holy Spirit, that's really weird. He goes out there, Satan's out there, and then he leaves full of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? You go out there into that place and you face all the fears, all the distractions, all the monsters, and God is there with you, even in that emptying, even in that anesthetic surgery where the feelings leave, and you will leave that space if you stick with it full of the Holy Spirit. We trust that the Father will meet us there and form us into the likeness of his Son. Okay, we're almost done, and I want to give us a couple of practical things, things that we can actually do. So what does silence and solitude mean, like, on Monday morning? If you're not totally scared off by now, I'm just going to give you three simple movements. They're more like ways to think about this as you're going through it, and then one, one simple practice. These can help ground us. The movements encapsulate both silence and solitude. They're not linear, so don't be fooled into thinking like I'm giving you like, here's the formula. Here's three steps to your most awesome silence and solitude. I'm not doing that. It's more like circular. You'll find yourself turning and returning to different parts of these movements through your time in this practice of silence and solitude. The very first thing is to just relax. Just like, chill out. Jesus is like, chill, man. The first aim in this form in prayer is to simply calm down. It's taking a deep breath and engaging the parasympathetic nervous system. I learned that word from Dan. Physically making space in your body, I don't even know what it means, so that your mind and heart are open to God. <laughs> Breathing. Just taking a deep breath is extremely helpful. Let's try it again one more time. And here's what's going to happen. There's like parasympathetic nervous system. This is actually what it does. It actually is the way when you take a deep breath, you're engaging your parasympathetic nervous system and the process of healing or rest actually happens in your body. This is why like when you're breathing, like you're taking deeper breaths than you've probably taken all day because your body is restoring and healing. And that's why some of you snore. I'm sorry, all spouses that have to be with a snoring person like me. I'm sorry, sweetie. 
Let's take a deep breath together. Let's try this out. A deep breath into the belly one more time. And exhale. Just calming down. This, this sort of breathing brings you into the present physical reality. It diminishes the metaphorical tiger that causes our anxious physiological reactions. It creates a conscious, intentional state of trust. I love that. Dan, Dan always says that. Like, hey, take a deep breath because you, there's a tiger coming to get you. I never heard this before. I was like, what is anxiety? And he's like, oh, it's your brain telling you that like a tiger is coming to get you. And you're like most primal. Like the reason your heart starts beating fast is because you think that you're in danger when you are truly not in danger. If you were in danger, then you would probably know because there would be like a tiger or something crazy going on. But the metaphorical tiger is not real. It's bringing you into the conscious state of reality. A meditative, slow reading of scripture is probably also helpful in this, to just relax. Let God pull us away from the anxieties. The Psalms are really good for this meditative, like, slow reading. If you need somewhere to start, just, like, read, read Psalm 103 or read Psalm 121. It's beautiful. <laughs> like, just really short and beautiful to take you into a place where you're engaging with God. In very difficult seasons, I find myself reading Psalm 42 over and over again. The second movement, if you're writing this down, is listen. Again, we want to remind ourselves constantly, the primary posture of a disciple is leaning back into the heart of Jesus. We want to hear his heartbeat. As his disciples, we are primarily listeners, not like talkers. Like what I'm doing right now, this, this is not most of my week. I find myself in the morning, like sit, I need to sit down and like not say anything. I need to like shut my mouth. Like turn to your neighbor and say, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth in a loving way. Shut your mouth. I love you. <laughs> As his disciples were primarily listeners. This is young Samuel, like in the temple, and his infamous response to hearing God. Speak, Lord, for your, for your servant is listening. My, my parents would always tell him. When I was actually, when I was afraid of the dark and I was a kid, and I would, like, dream weird things and hear things, they would actually be like, okay, so there's this guy in the Bible, his name is Samuel, and he was hearing things in the dark. And so what you're going to do, little Joshua, is when you hear something or you feel like there's something weird going on, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. This is a great practice. By the way of Jesus' sacrifice in the new covenant, we actually have the same direct and intimate access to the Father that Samuel did. The same closeness that Jesus had. He says, I have loved you with the same love by which my father loves me. And like we said earlier, it's from the place of listening and first being loved by Jesus that we go and interact with the world, resting in that same love, which takes us to the third movement, love. The prayerful journey is one that takes us from a deep place of fear into a deep state of love. We let go of our fear. We're no longer afraid to stand in the dark and face ourselves and the monsters within. We let go of our attachments and our need to control or manage the world around us. We do what Jesus did and we become like Jesus primarily in that everything he was stemmed from the Father's love for him. We allow Jesus to guide us on a pathway into love and in this we are truly satisfied. As St. John of the Cross said, our greatest need is to be silent before this great God because the only language he hears is the silent language of love. Like, just rest your soul and be loved by the Father. And there's so much to be mined here and so much more that you could say. I always want to, like, try to get as much out, but 
I've been encouraged to just engage with simplicity and cut a bunch of stuff so that you guys actually hear what I'm saying and that you actually have an intangible to go out into this week. So we're going to engage this with simplicity. Here's just one thing that we can do together to engage in this practice. You've got a lot on your plate. You are busy. That's what we are. We're a busy culture. I'm busy. Oh, how was it going? How are you doing? I'm, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. First of all, Try to take some stuff off your plate. If you can, this will be like vital to your like living a spiritual life. If you can take some stuff off your plate, unless they're human babies, don't take those off your plate. Don't do that. I'm not pastorally encouraging you to be like, woo, to your kids. But if you've got a lot on your plate, start right where you are. Otherwise known as like get in where you fit in. Start right where you are. Take any and every little moment you can to get still and acknowledge the presence of God. And I'm talking about like little moments. I'm talking about if you do it for 30 seconds every day, every time you have a little moment, it could very well change your life. In traffic, like when you're just sitting there, turn off your podcast, turn off the radio, acknowledge the presence of God. In the shower, when you're singing Beyonce or even like Maverick City or whatever, like just stop and acknowledge the presence of God while you're cooking a meal in the morning before the rest of your house wakes. Maybe even when you're rising in the middle of the night, you can't get sleep. Like, look at God and know that you're loved. One of the biggest steps might be to, like, not pick up your phone in the in-between moments to pass time, but instead pause, even for just 50 seconds, and wave in God's direction with a simple phrase, I love you, Lord, or I, I know you love me, or something simple like, Holy Spirit, come. Open my eyes wide. Holy Spirit, come. We're almost done here. Resources and reading recommendations are all going to be in the upcoming weekly, so make sure that you're following that. If you want to know more about this, this is not, I'm not giving you the exhaustive list. I'm not going to give you everything that you need to know, but if you have time, go and read that. Ruth Haley Barton's invitation to solitude and silence was like super soul resonating for me. It was beautiful. She says this, and we'll wrap up right here. For reals this time, I'm doing the preacher thing that I hate when I'm sitting on the other side, but here it is. The origin of your desire for God is found in God. It's not you. You do not have to drum up desire to do this. It is found in him. This morning here with neighbors under the white tents, on the pavement, God desires to be with you. Tomorrow morning at that coffee shop or the kitchen table, God desires to be with you. Later today, when your child stops asking you for something, for like everything and anything for 30 seconds, if that happens, Lord, we pray right now that that happens. God desires to be with you. On Tuesday, when you need to breathe for three minutes because you just had like three Zoom calls, God desires to be with you. No matter what you've entered into your days with, he's the only one that truly sees you. He sees the brokenness. He sees the monsters in the dark that keep you up at night. He sees the sickness. He sees the pain in your body. He sees the dysfunctional family tie. He sees the depression. He sees the thoughts that won't leave you alone, the anxiety and fear. And when he looks at you, if you've given yourself over to his love, he in fact sees Jesus and he wants to be with Jesus' people and if what I'm describing to you sounds completely foreign welcome we're a people practicing the way of Jesus everything we do runs against the stream of culture and the noise of this world it's just unlike anything I've ever experienced and has reignited my heart to want to practice and follow the way of Jesus I'm probably more alive in God now than I was even when I was 15 years old.
because I realize that he truly sees me. Through everything that I face now, through the anxieties, through the fear, through the depression, I can acknowledge even that, even those things can be guides to the feet of Jesus. And there in the quiet and in the stillness, in the lonely place, God wants to fulfill your deepest longing. It's only found in him. We're going to come to the table together. And Dan's going to lead us in that moment. But as we do, we'll just take a moment. I don't want you to like stand for worship. Let's close our eyes together. And in your own time, we don't have to all do it together. Take that deep breath and engage your parasympathetic nervous system. And as you do, hear this. No one wants to make things right in your life more than God does. Your desire for things to be okay is not stronger than God's desire for things to be okay. He loves you. And as we together run after him, he is running after us. We'll take a moment. And as silent as the city can get, we'll sit in the silence. And we'll sing together and then we'll come to the table.